contrast to all of the other governments I've experienced or interacted with, the government in El Salvador is trying to earnestly, and it seems like they might actually make it, to modernize their country, do things that actually help people, make big strides quickly, and have some boldness. It's just impossible to imagine that in the U.S. All right, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of The Network Age. I am Vigil Ritson, and I am here with my co-hosts, Nilrun Mardux and Timluk Miptev, and of course, our wonderful guest, Theodore Blackman, also known as Ravnus Rickfer. And we are here to discuss all things urbit and assembly, and assembly just happened, and while I wasn't privileged enough to be there because um, I'm NGMI, it seemed incredibly exciting from the outside, and I spent the whole weekend just glued to Twitter, looking at everything that people were posting, and I just think it's a, it's a great opportunity to dive into why we're so excited about urbit and see what's going on, and if the promises we, we've all been making and, and believing are getting fulfilled. I was the same as you, Mitchell. I was, you know, observing it from Twitter and getting very, very excited, specifically because it felt like the promises that I've been sort of putting myself out on a limb and making to people on Twitter and on here were actually coming true, which is always nice when you're, you know, not writing checks that your butt can't cash. <laughs> and the biggest promise that, like, you know, my and other butts felt like they were cashing was, like, the one of composability, uh, where we've talked a lot about, like, you know, making money programmable via, like, you know, ETH and roll-ups. We've talked a lot about like unifying the entire like operating system and letting, you know, apps compose with each other, bringing developers into that whole thing. And it feels like that's actually happening now. And so when you say composability, what you're talking about here is the ability for all parts in the system to work together seamlessly, right? Right. I mean that any you know anything you do can be accessed by other things and isn't in silos. Just again to give our to refresh our listeners on our brief money examples, I would say that you know non crypto electronic electronic money now mostly isn't composable because it's hard to at, like access it seamlessly from a program without having to then go through manual like compliance steps or something like that. And the same is true when you have lots of different like online apps you've subscribed to that can't talk to each other. That would also be an example of non composability. I can actually give a little bit of color to that, you can look at Stripe. And Stripe is this huge, you know, multi-billion dollar company. Uh, and basically all they do is write glue uh, to glue together all these different financial providers. It's, and it's such a huge pain that, uh, yeah, they, they created a multi, this enormous company that just does that. I had wanted to do a Stripe episode for a while because they feel like almost the evil version of my thesis or the bizarro version, like in the sense that I think everything they're doing is correct given their view of the world. And I think they execute it really, really well. Their view of the world basically is that, you know, we have this existing financial system and we need to glue it together really well. And I think they do that about as well as you reasonably could. And they're, mm -hmm. you know, Valuation yeah. reflects that, but it's not a knock it's on Stripe. Just, it's a knock on what they're trying to fix. Exactly, and so I think it's a great. That's like sort of a great example of getting into what we're seeing a way out of at Assembly this year. Is that like maybe there is a way past just glue? So I mean, Ted, I should just like throw it to you. Like, tell me, like on the composability lines, what was exciting you at Assembly? Yeah, I, the most exciting piece of composability that I saw at Assembly was Holium. So mm -hmm. they, Holium have built a sort of OS-like 
front end for Urbit. So they have a client, uh, it's an app that you download and run on your computer. Uh, and so instead of using an Urbit client in the browser, which is how most people do it now, instead you download this Holium app. And then within the Holium app, they have a little windowing system. And so you can have a bunch of different windows going. And so that include the normal Urbit apps like groups and chat, but then also uh, they've built a couple of things that you can stick into multiple Urbit apps. So they have a, a sense of presence uh, that's pluggable. So you can say who, who of your Urbit friends are online. Uh, and you can even see their you know, mouse cursors. They also have, so you can plug that into any Urbit app that you build. Uh, and then similarly, they also have um, a, a voice chat system that can, you can also plug into Urbit apps and a crypto wallet. So all of these are components that are reusable by many different Urbit applications as opposed to just one sort of standalone siloed uh, system that you run. And so this is, I think, you know, several, in, several examples of the kinds of interoperability and composability that we want to see on Urbit. I want to push a little bit on Holium because while I like them and I think it's gorgeous, I always have this fear in the back of my mind when I, and, and I want to just preface this by saying that I, I'm super bullish on Holium, but I always have this fear in my mind that like, is this just smoke and mirrors? Are they just sort of throwing up an interface uh, written mostly in JavaScript? There's not that much backend going on. And at the end of the day, will it really be composable? Or when it comes to time for me to write my own app that hooks into Holium's front end, will it end up being just as annoying as writing another modern app? What's your feeling there? So integration between apps and JavaScript will never be nice. Uh, it's actually not really JavaScript's fault. It's the fault of the browser environment, which is just never designed to do that. Talon has hit this really hard over the past few years, and I mean, we've made a lot of strides to overcome a lot of those problems, but it's, it's sort of fighting an uphill battle to try to get um, multiple client apps running in a browser that are all talking to your own server. It's supposed to be the opposite. Yeah, totally. So what is, what is um, Holium doing differently? That's what I'm trying to get at for our listeners, because I, I want yeah. to be excited. I want to believe. Holium has gotten part of the way toward this composability story uh, and not all the way. Getting all the way, it will take more work, but it, it is something that everybody in Urbit wants to do. So the first step toward composability in general for these applications is composable backends. And so you can do that in Hoon. Hoon's really good for that. Not, and not really the language itself, but the environment that Hoon runs it. So that part is good. Uh, and then the difficult part comes when you need to write a front end, like a client, uh, for your app. And so Malice Fabris, for example, was telling me that uh, she had done Hoon School. That was pretty easy. She wrote some apps. And then she had to go and jump into JavaScript. And she was like, what is this? So how, how exactly is Holium removing that need? Can you go into particulars there? Yeah, so Holium doesn't remove the need to write JavaScript. But they've gotten out of the browser, right? So instead of running... Uh, instead of your Urbit client being uh, something that you have in a browser tab, it's uh, an app that you download like Telegram. And so that's how Holium stuff runs. And so because of that, they can sidestep a lot of the impedance mismatches between uh, the way the web is designed to work, which is that you have you know, one client app uh, that talks to many different servers. Uh, and instead, you have many client apps talking to the same server. Yeah, and I think that this is really exciting, not only from like a developer perspective, but from the perspective of a user. You know, I'm relatively 
non-technical and like for now watching for now yeah, and them being forced to go to the coding gulags uh as we speak but i think that looking at assembly from afar holium offers just a super clear sort of value prop for someone who wants to get on urbit and use it and have the experience be smoother and have it be more than you know just a discord reddit clone or something like that like you watch their videos and their demonstrations and it just becomes so clear to envision a future that's i don't know maybe a year or two down the road where everything is working together in this app it's easy for users to be on there and makes it being on urbit like as aesthetically pleasing as it is interesting and exciting. And I, I think that really matters for um, getting, for unlocking all these apps working together. To follow on that, like Ted, to ask a sort of technical question, but I'll try to put it in clear terms. Uh, are you saying that by making, by, by having Holium run their environment as a standalone app that you download, like Telegram or something, does that mean that? Even though the developer is writing JavaScript on the front end, a lot of the things that make JavaScript annoying to write on the front end are sort of removed. So you're, you're able to write sort of like simpler interfaces, or am I off base there? Yeah, that's right. And I, I haven't looked into the exact details of uh, what it takes to write a Holium front end component. But yeah, I mean, they should be able to sidestep the cross-origin resource sharing restrictions and the, the browser limit on how many simultaneous connections you can have to a single... Uh, server. So just off the top of my head, I can think of two things that should be easier. Yeah. So I think like that's a really cool example with Holium and I can start to see some light at the end of the tunnel in terms of cooler experiences being on Urbit. I want to get to, you know, Nilrun a little bit because he was also there in person. And I think your impressions, actually, I don't know, Nilrun, are your impressions, what you're taking away, were they more uh, this kind of technical composability stuff that excites me, or was there anything else that like really got you going at this event? Yeah, I think there's this interesting question of just like how do we evaluate Urbit, right? We're all incredibly bullish. We all want Urbit, and you know, Balaji had a very interesting talk, right? So we all we all kind of heard that and kind of this sort of you know kind of more or less very negative on Urbit, sort of like Urbit has improved itself, and then I kind of was just my takeaway was more like okay. A, how do we evaluate Urbit success? Because I feel this is mm. happening. Like, this is sort of inevitable. But how do we actually, you know, really provide the metrics that show this is inevitable? And a few things that jump out to me are things like, like, we have 3x the number of people registered for Hoon School this year, the last school. That is huge. Like, we're seeing exponential growth there. Think about the number of apps. I think Ted had a tweet recently where he's just like, I don't, I no longer know all the apps on Urbit. And I don't either. Like, there were a lot more apps shown that I have not tested. Part of that is my ship is... Uh, having issues downloading apps. So I'm probably going to talk to Ted about that. But those are a few things there where, you know, how do we actually evaluate Urban? And I think we need to like really dive into that to kind of justify our bullishness. But I, I do feel insanely bullish overall from Assembly. Okay, so when we say, like, how do we evaluate Urbit, we're basically saying that we think this is a big part of the network age, and the network age is happening right now. And what you're trying to do, it sounds like, is... It sounds like you're sort of, you know, your lying eyes are telling you that like something amazing is happening here and it, re it, it feels not fake at all. And then you have people from the outside who are taking a cursory glance at it, like someone like uh, Balaji Srinivasan. 
Um, and they're saying, you know, we don't think this is, li- you know, sort of living up to what we think a startup should be doing. Is that more, you know, more, and you're trying to like sort of reconcile those things, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, I, I look at it like, right, we have sound money, you know, maybe it's ETH, maybe it's Bitcoin, but like we obviously from the network age need information. You know, Josh Rosenthal did a really good job in our last episode talking about that and also talking at our panel during assembly, just yeah, he really, great. yeah, he really went deep there. Um, mm. <laughs> you know, he went... I think he went hard. He went, yeah, he, he had a lot of energy. I mean, Justin Murphy also ended that very strong with this sort of like, you're basically a pussy if you're not learning to hoon right now. Like, the, you know, the American. Sounds like the kind of thing Justin would say. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that is the kind of this general question um, of how do we evaluate? Like, are we, are we somehow missing something? I don't think so. I think, like, if I had to dig into Balaji, like, what really upset me about that talk was, like, he basically had this table, right, listing Web 2, Web 3, and Urbit on each dimension, and he completely misses the composability thing. Like, the whole problem is you have massive companies having to glue both Web 2 um, and Web 3 together. And so, like, he just, if you individually list out each, you're like, oh, yeah, well, like, Urbit hasn't won on any. But I think that's what was interesting about this earlier conversation about Holium is this really, this ability to get composability, to have interoperability between apps, and to massively lower the barrier to develop. Yeah, I think a lot of that is really interesting. And talking about Balaji and other people who are critical of Urbit, it really does have to do that. Urbit can be hard to see. It takes investment to know it and understand it. And the way that the ecosystem is growing, it's becoming increasingly more convoluted, more sprawling. There's, it's As you said, it's, it's impossible to know all of Urbit now, which is maybe the most exciting part, right? That there is things going on where one end doesn't really know what the other end because it's it's becoming more and more like a real city, um, like a real place to uh, experience. And so I think that's something that actually for me makes a case is like bullish on Urbit is that it's starting to develop its own momentum and it cannot only you cannot know it only by being a tourist. It's like showing up to New York City and going to Times Square and saying uh, New York's New York's not going to make it. Right? There's you have to invest in knowing this whole strange, beautiful, flawed thing. All right. So then this brings me to where I'm going to push a little bit, and I'm. I, we, you mentioned this metric, Nilrun, of there were, I think, about maybe if it was 40, 50, 60 people doing the first version of Hoon School early in 2022. And now for this next one, the most recent numbers I heard are about 160 people signed up. And I know that yeah, when I was technically... Yeah, as of Thomas. Dear Lord. Um, yeah, and when, so uh, I know when I was... <laughs> When I was technical director of the foundation in 2021, we thought it was pretty successful that we had maybe, you know, 20 or 30 people come through. And the year prior to that, it was like me and like three other people. So that's like we're getting pretty clearly into exponential growth terms. And even the number of active ETH developers, which is the most active, you know, crypto ecosystem by far is in the, you know, give or take like about a thousand. Like Urbits, it's it's really it's shooting up in an incredible way. Um, so what I want to kind of ask you, and maybe I'll throw this to Ted, is given that that growth is happening, and we'll see whether it continues, uh, and also given that Urbit does have you know some technical hurdles and isn't quite ready to support certain kinds of load, there's still a lot of caveats. 
Do you think that that developer exponential growth, if it continues, is sufficient to kind of, you know, guarantee that Urbit hits what it wants? Or do you think that there's something else missing? Yeah, I I think it is inevitable. I think what I think about now is more timing, like just with this massive demand, with like the fact you can have, you know, Handshake that Hobside had set up. He did that in like overnight. Palfin has done so many apps. Like that was one of the most impressive parts when the core devs were giving their panel with um, Philip Monk, Joe, uh, Mark, and Ted. And when like Luke at one point, the VP for Tuan, just like, you know, is like introducing Palfin. And he just started like listing off the apps that Palfin has done. And everyone's just like, good Lord, this person has developed so many apps. And like a lot of these apps that we like know and rely on were built very, very quickly. And so I do think it's inevitable because of this experience. What I kind of think more about is, how do you make this happen faster? How do you like fix, for example, if you have 220 um, devs coming into Hoon School, how do you make sure they're like moving into full-time Hooning? And you know, overall, I'll just say anecdotally, talking to a lot of junior devs, they want to Hoon full-time. Like they're hooked. Oh, yeah. Well, so let me use um, Palfun as an, as an example to clarify my question a little bit more. Because while I don't, you know, I've, I'm very familiar with uh, Mark's work. Uh, he's extremely prolific, and I've interacted with him a lot. We used to have a standing call every week, and it was very interesting. Um, what I'm wondering though is, even you know, given that his prolificness, there's still a lot of issues in Urbit and a lot of bottlenecks on things like core development. And what I want to ask Ted specifically is what do you think could derail Urbit or what do you think is missing to translate this like this groundswell and enthusiasm into the core product like you know getting 10 times better it's a good question the big thing that we need to do is just expand the size of the core team in my opinion and mm. we're going to do that so the latest uh, this isn't totally set in stone but Philip Monk and I were talking with William Ball uh you know, Bitmap Fastwine and uh, from Assembly Capital. And we'd like to double the size of the core team from roughly 10 developers to roughly 20 in mm. the next six to nine months. So not all of that will be at Talon, and that'll be interesting. That'll be the first time that we actually have uh, people in multiple organizations uh, working on the kernel and the runtime at sort of you know, more than one or two outside of Talon. So that's an important shift in the decentralization of Urbit. And so that's requiring a lot of thought, and we're talking about it a lot among the galaxies. Uh, so we're going to do that incrementally, but uh, uh, I'm, I'm excited about that. So we're going to have to you know, change some of our internal processes and the way we divvy up projects, stuff like that, uh, in order to facilitate having lots of people work on it. So one thing this is reminding me a lot of is in the last bear market um, in the Ethereum community, they started to put a lot of emphasis on what they call public goods. So, you know, just very simply, like, it's mostly software that might not be for a specific project's token or a company's, like, equity, uh, but that, like, makes everything in ETH better. And people put in a lot of work in thinking how to make that happen. And I'd argue it's actually been pretty successful, like, stuff related to Gitcoin, um, other stuff going there. Like, they've successfully... That's interesting. How did they, how did they do it? Like, what was their sort of strategy? So this is one that I've been digging into on my own lately. So there's, there's, a few, there's a few answers. Like, one of the first things they did is they just named it really hard. And so this was like, um, are you familiar with, like, Moloch Dao at all? 
Like I've heard of it. Yeah, and essentially that was based on the the word comes from like the Scott Alexander uh, Slate Star Codex essay about this idea of like Moloch being oh, yeah. sort of this like demon of you know the problems of human coordination that no matter what, what even when people want nice things uh, you know various like game theoretic stuff uh, and tragedy of the common stuff makes that not happen and you end up yeah. with crappiness. Yeah. Inevitably, they didn't and, go to the uh, Stern Grove, whatever it was, Bohemian Grove. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's not, it's not really, yeah, un- unre- unrelated. Um, so the idea is like giving this focal point of we have to continuously slay Moloch, and so that gives this like emotional edge to public goods and let, lets people know that like this is a meaningful thing that has to be done. So I think naming it first and then starting to make structures to fund it. And I know you and I have talked like some about, you know, what it would take to get those structures going and stuff like that. Uh, but I think there's, I think in Urbit, we've just started doing this recently. And I think we could learn a lot from the ETH community and also like really like get our own narratives going about the importance of these like critical public goods that haven't been like narrativized enough. Yeah. Well, fortunately, we've got a lot of people who are actually involved in in that part of ETH who are now heavily involved in Urbit, guys like Lane Reddick. That, yeah, that's another part of the story. I mean, I know this is a little bit different than what you're talking about, which I think is a bit more technical, but this idea of public goods really does remind me of what the Urbit Foundation is doing with these community grants and adding uh, time, space, and money for people to pursue Urbit-related projects, you know, from Internet of Things to the really cool OLIF, you know, generating uh, a scent for your sigil stuff. And I think that even if not all of that is related to core development and these types of questions that do need to be answered, it does help create a lot of energy and investment in the community for a whole range of projects that appeal to the many diverse brains, you know, that are that are using Urban. I think it's so cool that money is being is being put towards something as, as physical and real and strange as as a scent, right? That's I don't know, a community public good in its way. Yeah, I mean, one thing I want to touch on here is just that, you know, we're talking about, oh, what does Urbit need? What is it missing? I don't feel like anything is missing at the moment, actually. I think things are going great. Uh, I want to say that explicitly. <laughs> Hell yeah. uh, the, there's a, there are a ton of projects that are doing not only cool and exciting stuff, but real, uh, real things, right? Stuff that people can actually use, physical devices that you can buy and run at work. You know, a lot of this stuff is, you know, it's not vaporware. Uh, it's not just a toy. Uh, it's edging toward product, real production, consumer, consumer-grade production software. Now, I think we're not at consumer-grade yet. And first, we're going to have to hit a couple more plateaus about getting more devs, getting more crypto devs, et cetera. Um, but that's ramping up very quickly. And it's a good time to start looking around at Urbit and seeing where you might be able to help out. Yeah, and to that point of you know ramping up, you talked about ramping up the core team from 10 to 20 um, what does that look like? I know we had some conversation about maybe having like a guild, you know, this is very early stage, but how do you get, you know, right now it's been mostly Talon. Now we're talking about having, say, ecosystem core devs, and there seems to be a ton of demand for that from across the core developers at Talon. How do, how do they get looped in? Is it like, how do we support these public goods like that, like scaling the core dev team? Honestly, we're still figuring it out, but there's a lot of motivation from uh, from the foundation, from Assembly Capital, I think from Ookbar and some of the other mm. companies too to contribute because it's good for everybody, and that's what the public good is, right? Uh, but people, 
uh, you know, the people working on these different projects in Urbit understand the concept of a public good and how that benefits everybody in the network. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Do you think ultimately it'll be kind of this maybe working committee across both the Talon core devs as well as each of the product companies will end up hiring their own yeah. core developers as well? I yeah, understand. I do think that's what it's going to look like. And then it's unclear exactly how that's going to be sort of coordinated. Um, eventually, I'm sure that'll be formalized somehow. And um, yeah, maybe that looks like a, more of a guild the way Hadzad is proposing. Or maybe that looks more just like a subcommittee of the foundation, as somebody else proposed. Um, there are a lot of different ways that could go in terms of how it gets formalized, but it's also it's a small enough group um, for now and for the foreseeable future that um, it, it mostly just kind of we got to figure out who's going to which which organization is going to put which money into which things, and then and they just kind of keep talking to each other about it. I think we're, we'll be in good shape. Mm, so you're saying this is inevitable that we just need to kind of think about scaling. Like, what does it look like in the next year? two years, three years, like how far can we move? Like we've moved really, it seems like we've moved quite far. Maybe like Tim and Bitchell disagree on that, but just looking. No, I don't disagree at all. I'm, I'm, I'm super impressed with like everything. And I'm just like always, I'm always in this position of like, if I see something going well, then that's my cue to look for, can it be even better? And I find that like yeah. when, th when stuff is going well, that's actually the best time to make big jumps to make stuff even better because it means you have sort of more momentum, more like talent. So Tim, look, to that point, like what do you, what would, how would you respond to like Balaji, right? Did you see that present? You probably heard like talk of that presentation, right? Of that table. Yeah, so this is public information. Uh, we're both on the foundation, Urbet Foundation's board. It's Austin, one other member. And uh, so I've even though I only saw a little bit of his talk or heard the gist, I've heard him give that uh, essentially that critique in other in other forms mm -hmm. in private conversations. Uh, and the fact that he said it publicly means that I'm you know totally fine you know sharing that. And yeah, my critique is very. It has two parts. So the first is similar to yours, which is that he's just completely missing composability. Um, I think there's this other thing though, which is that, and maybe it's maybe it's like much the same thing, but that when people from a very specific sort of San Francisco investment background look at things, um, for whatever reason, their their worldview doesn't really emphasize composability. I think because it's so much about like getting something off the ground initially and finding kind of a positive feedback loop that gets you going, that you sort of always. Are, you end up in this local maximum where every process you have in place is based on this form of iteration to like get your company alive. And you can pretty much always, or not always, but in a lot of cases do that without having to worry whether it's composable because you can often provide enough value to users. And so when he looks at something like Urbit, what he sees is something that's failing. In the, I, I mean, I even disagree that it's failing uh, to do that. Um, but let me let me give a sort of broader critique, though, which is yeah. that I think if he looked at it with a not so, – so we almost have two competing metrics here. We're looking at sort of the, the urbit, like, you know, thousand-year computer. We're going to get this stuff right, like, you know, get, every, get everything there critique. And then there's the Silicon Valley, like, you know, not iterating critique. And I want to present a different frame for looking at it. But let me first – I think, Bitchell, you have something you want to just jump in there with. Well, I just wanted to say that I think that – Urbit requires a bit of a paradigm shift, especially if you come from a place of looking to maximize your investment in tech, right? Which everything slides into a set of well-worn grooves, right? There's paths to making money. You want things 
to be really usable and really easy to onboard people and it their mm-hmm. the value system isn't there and I, I don't know urbit has a, a set of interests and values that are larger than it just being workable from day one and one thing that's cool is it hasn't sacrificed those yet and if you your goal is to get something running as quick as possible and make money then urban as it currently exists does not seem to to fall straight into that category even if it's moving in the right direction. Urban doesn't fall into any categories. It's sui generis, right? This is actually one of the reasons it's so difficult for venture capitalists to be able to make an investment in it. I want to be kind of contrarian here because the view that Mitchell just outlined and that uh, Ted emphasized is definitely like sort of the standard Urbit view. And I might have even, you know, sort of fully signed off on it a year or two ago. And recently we've seen, um, you know, Philip Monk, Wiktiv Wizright kind of eloquently expound on that view on Twitter in ways where I agree with the sentiment. But I think if we put that kind of Urbit purist, uh, you know, view that sort of it's hard to invest in, you have to do it in this longer term thing, you have to, it's not about this quick buck and the, you know, more Silicon Valley view where you have to like, you know, iterate your way to success and quickly find product market fit. I think there's one other way of looking at Urbit, which is in a crypto lens. And I think if you look at it in the lens of mm-hmm. Urbit is very much a crypto project because the, uh, both the use cases that it unlocks are, mo- are most relevant to crypto in terms of providing decentralized computing to make crypto apps possible. And also it's funded in crypto ways. Most of the projects built on it have crypto aspects. If you look at it in that way, it suddenly becomes much more uh, both investable and the metrics become a lot clearer. So it's more investable because the stuff it's building is both usable in the near term for crypto and far like far better than stuff that's in crypto. Um, yeah. But also, uh, there's this really clear metric in crypto investing, which is developer interest. And it's almost like in the sort of 2000s, people had to relearn investing to understand that like, you know, in these winner take all markets, growth mattered a lot more than revenue for companies like Google or Facebook early on, because eventually Mm -hmm. you want to dominate the whole market. In crypto, for whatever, for whatever reason, what you need is this like, these sort of shelling points for developer talent. And so investors who are good in crypto will be looking for projects that have organic developer talent. I could give any number of examples. And by that metric, Urbit is growing at an incredibly fast rate that I think makes it one of the most investable projects there is and actually just does this whole end around on the entire sort of Silicon Valley funding uh, model and the like, you know, we're going to toil in the purest trenches with no one understanding us and no money coming in model in, in a way that I think is really important and is resonating with people. All you need is the teal bucks, right? <laughs> well, this is, yeah, this is sort of the alternative to the teal bucks. The teal bucks are actually, yeah, I mean, let's, let's talk about that. I think um, teal bucks as sort of a metonym are this, are this sort of idea of like, there's stuff in the world that, you know, maybe one rich person wants to exist. And so he throw, you know, just throws money at it. Um, and I think that by actually driving real metrics for crypto investment, Urbit gets around that and becomes fundable without teal bucks, which is, in my view, an extremely good thing. And, and I think we should dive into this, right? Like this teal bucks mm-hmm. thing or just like is, you know, one easiest way to ask is like, you know, is Urbit, are Urbit companies having trouble raising money? Like Talan just did around, mm-hmm. Ukbar obviously you did a bridge round. Um, Holium just did a round. Like, everyone's raising money. And then, you know, when I talk... 
yeah, when I talk anecdotally to just the VCs there, like Delphi, A16, like everyone wants to invest in urban companies. It is interesting. They're not really asking about address space, but there is money entering. So if we're going to like put it under the microscope, it's like there is demand. Yeah, actually, I would say uh, very quickly just that the um, I was very happy to see at Assembly, multiple investors came up to me and said, hey, we want to fund urban companies. So now we've got people writing Hoon and investors waiting in the wings. So I mm-hmm. highly advise if you know how, if you know who and are interested, start building something. Uh, and I think in, to flesh out that composability story, basically just need a lot more apps. And of course, the core dev does need to you know continue to make progress. But even just now, uh, that's a good thing to do. I think anecdotally, any company that has enough money to, to pay me to hang around has too much money. So I think there's actually too much in that urban <laughs> this is, Right. This is like the Annie Hall like employee like sort of thing. I yeah. don't want to work for any company that would have me as an employee like this. The <laughs> equity tokens, whatever, are going are gonna to be worthless. Um, this is making me very excited to kind of, you know, get on Twitter and start pushing the idea of urbit public goods, because I feel like that's one of the missing pieces in this investability mm. thing is getting people, like just giving them that narrative to hang their hat on, the, like that they all, the thing they already wanted to do, um, this like narrative hook in their minds to put that on. And yeah, it's, this is, I don't know, this is like really coming together in a lot of ways. And you can think of those public goods as being ways to just drastically increase that developer metric because of like, it makes it easier for people to come. It gives the existing people more to do. And then that in turn makes everything like much more fundable. Well, I think that this sort of comes to an interesting question that we've seen some people express, which is a worry that if Urbit grows too quickly um, or has too much focus on funding or something like that, that it'll lose some of what makes Urban special and the the energy that goes towards funding public goods or community projects, which I think is something that we all find compelling about Urban. And I'm wondering if you guys think that that's a a danger or if preserving the the culture, quote unquote, uh, matters in any particular way. Yeah, so this is, like, Assembly was night and day different from any other crypto conference I've gone to. I've gone to Consensus. I've gone to a couple big Bitcoin conferences, like BTC Miami twice. Um, Were there women? They're actually, yeah, well, that was the biggest difference. There were women and children, you know, like, weirdly playing. And, like, everyone was getting along with the ladies. It was and like dads. Yeah, dads. Um, well, our dads. So yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of dads. It's an extremely natalist community. <laughs> it's... It's incredibly datalist. Um, I would say, like, the hu- the biggest, like, I was trying to think, why is that? I was actually talking to the reserve CEO, this guy, Nevin, really smart guy. He gave a talk. And he was just like, look, these people all want Urbit to succeed. They're not here for, like, crypto. They're here for Urbit to win. That's what brought all these dads together into this beautiful dad, you know, sausage fest. So, <laughs> yeah, this was, this is about Urbit. They're not really interested in, like, even Web3 broadly. They want Urbit. So is that the way that it was different from other conferences? Well, how it's different is, like, they're not here to, like, yeah, for example, just, like, get some insider information to be able to buy some shitty token. Uh, like, they're here yeah, They're yeah. here for, like, the thousand-year computer 
that's it's so different in that regard. I can shed a little light on that. So one thing in a lot in a lot of crypto, uh, even right now, is people are really looking for like what they what they'll say is like what's the new meta? Like what's the story? Like the catalyst that's going to drive crypto right now? You know, ETH has improved scalability with rollups and you know financial sort of sustainability uh, mm. and environmental with the merge. And everyone's wondering, okay, we have this really good base. What's going to get built on it? And I think the difference with Urbit culture and I'll address like Bitchell's thing specifically about the money is that people really know what they want to happen with the money and they know they're, they're not wondering what the new meta is. Like they have this like yeah. these very clear ideas of programs they want to exist that are going to take some work to happen but aren't there yet. And I think that adds just this like massive intentionality. You know if you had more money, who you would want to hire to do what. You know like if you're, let's say, going back to Holium, like, okay, we, we, we know we want these collab collaboration programs, like, you know, video chatting, and we want this to work better. And so I think there's just this like I guess it's the well. Let's talk about Peter Thiel, like his thing about in his startup book about, um, I guess, definite optimism, where you're optimistic about the future and you have very strong ideas of how that would happen. Uh, Elon Musk is sort of the prime example of this currently, and I think Urbit has a lot of definite optimism. People think stuff is going to be good, and they know exactly how they want to make it good, and so money just lets them work on that. Yeah, and I think it relates to just like a lot of this is rebuilding Web 2. Like, of course, we're going to build a lot of awesome applications that were never built in Web 2, um, as well as like making Web 3 actually work. But overall, it's like we have a pretty good roadmap in terms of like which apps we want. We want to be able to do Google Suite within um, Urbit. We want to be able to have Stack Overflow. Awesomely, someone already created that in the hackathon. I was like, oh. Yeah, just learn that. Yeah, just learn that too. <laughs> I was just like just chatting with the woman. I was like, oh, that's like an app we had talked about for a while. I'm like glad you built that. And it was like kind of funny she didn't know how to monetize it, but we kind of could have gotten to that as well. Well, we gave her some hints, especially Little Wolfer did. Um, I think that like, so we have a really good roadmap. We kind of know what we want to build. And yeah, I don't know. I think we have like the right people. Like I think it is good we still have this gating in terms of like keeping random drifters out. But I do want to talk about this from the core perspective, uh, this definite optimism. It's a good way of phrasing it. I, I've been saying that uh, we, starting around six months ago, the core devs started to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Mm. Meaning we can start to see the, what Urbit looks like, what you know, Urbit OS, the core of the system, the kernel and the runtime, what those look like as real bulletproof consumer products. And so that's always been the, the goal and the dream of Urbit, but you know, 10 years ago, it was very, very far from that. And so now there's a finite list of things that need to be done to the core uh, to get it there. And so we know what those are. We know uh, almost entirely what needs to be done to get us there. And it's just a matter of getting there quickly enough and making sure that when we do it, we do it well. Because, you know, Urban is a, is a standard, among other things. And so we want it to be a good standard. Mm. But uh, so that's a lot of what I think about with the core dev. And I actually don't like this framing of it's inevitable. It, no, it requires people to do work. And mm -hmm. uh, we have a lot of work cut out for us in order to get there. It's great that we can see where it's going. It's very exciting. And we want to bring in more people uh, to help us get there faster. But yeah, we, we definitely, I don't worry about sort of, uh, uh, I don't know, hoi polloi somehow polluting the project. I don't, I don't think that's really a risk. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do want to make sure that we do a good job 
on delivering on the technical promise of Urbit as a this you know di- uh, tiny diamond perfect system. With regard to the Hoi Polloi, uh, I think people might not know the deep lore of the Network Age, formerly Web Zero podcast, is that we started it actually with an episode with Ted and coming up with these narratives about composability and unified environments for programmers. And one thing I realized after that episode that we actually never published, so this is the first time you're hearing, it was our B-side, like, yeah, it was the, <laughs> the yellow led better. Yeah, and... Um, one thing I remember thinking from that was that, like, if I took, like, you know, a couple of our lead devs on Ookbar and said that, you know, Urbit is just going to only be hoi polloi, like, normies uh, with you and, you know, one other guy writing the programs for them forever, but it all works, they would be totally fine. That would be awesome. And I think that's, like, the most important thing for people to understand with Urbit versus like sort of, I guess, more like projects that are only vibes and culture is that it's actually really is about the tech and having more people come in who want to use it and who can use it honestly just makes it better and more fun for the people writing it. And I think when you see this like vision that like Ted had laid out in his panel about, you know, like you can just deploy an app and it'll just work. When you see, when you hear that vision, like it's really inspiring for Myself and a lot of others, I mean, Justin Murphy came up to me during, like, the Ukbar demo. He's just like, dude, I want to start coding on this. There's just, like, it has this, like, even the non-technical people around Urbit want to build on Urbit. That's the, that's We've like converted the a lot of non-technical people into technical people. Mm-hmm. Look at uh, Rabseth Bikram. Let's, like, let's talk about that. We have, like, a non-technical person on this podcast named Vigil Ritson, who... I actually like relate to it and sympathize because I was a you know CS major and then stopped coding for about five years after school. And I think I, to get back into it, I really did need this aspect of fun. And so I think for a lot of like sort of high IQ, but people who consider themselves non-technical who are sitting there, I actually think it's like a pretty exciting, cool way to get into it that I, in, in my opinion, based on what I know, will kind of like let you keep a lot of that. But just for full context, we're, we're forcing Vigil Ritson to take Hoon school and saying that he will be fired from Ukbar if he does not like complete it. Uh, first off, I'm looking forward to getting fired. I will, ha- I will finally be able to live <laughs> my life to my fullest. And second, uh, <laughs> what, I mean, what's, what's exciting to me about this is, you know, coding's always sort of been interesting as an intellectual thing. And, you know, I feel like there's, you know, a different path that I could have gone down that did that. But I just, it seems like such a cool time to get into coding. You get to, if, if you're working on Urbit, like we are at the beginning of something and that makes the idea of, of being able to build something so much more interesting to me. And like, you don't necessarily have to have like the revolutionary idea that no one has had before. You just sort of, we need people in the trenches building things that work, that make the Urbit ecosystem rich, that expand in all directions. And I think, you know, it appeals to the part of me that went to fiction writing grad school, right? There's, you get a chance to create a whole world. And here is Urbit creating a whole world from scratch. And I think that's so much more interesting than just, just trying to jump on the internet and make something that works and, and makes you money is you get a chance to, to be uh, on this, on a, on a great, Adventure. I don't know. That's the that's the thing that sort of excites me as someone who uh, has who is trying to find a reason to embrace having a gun to my head about coding. <laughs> 
I want to agree and amplify because one question our listeners might have is, is it possible that some times can be cooler to be encoding than others? And as like, you know, the old person here, uh, I, I mean, I can just tell you coding in the early mid 2000s was much cooler than coding in like 1998. Like literally there were just more fun languages and environments. Server side programming was a thing. Um, this, this comes out if you read early Paul Graham essays that like there actually was something more fun in that period. And I think by analogy, I think there's something more fun happening here where it actually just might be cooler for you to program now than it would have been in a different context like three or four years ago. I think it's so cool that like really we should be proactively, you know, kidnapping Bitchell and others and just throwing them into Hoon like <laughs> real camps. You know, like Russia mobilized, why doesn't Hoon and mobilize? I think it's time. Also, this idea of fun is interesting because it's a particular kind of fun. Uh, there are other kinds of fun too. The... Uh, but this kind of fun is more related to the old idea of leisure, where you know, you're doing something that you care about, you're doing something that's a form of self-expression, it's good for the world, it is adventurous. Uh, so it's not sort of mindless fun, it's not passive fun, um, and it's more about self-expression. I think it lets you make, when you have this system that works in which you can quickly build cool stuff and interact with things and play with it at your leisure, as you say, I think it lets you like make coding a part of your life and almost like this interesting hobby rather than like this all or nothing. And I think that makes it a lot more exciting and approachable. Yeah. We often talk about the distance between toy and production. Mm. Uh, because normally, you know, let's say you go and you learn some new language, Rust, let's say, right, as a programmer. And then you, to play with it, you make a toy, right? You make some application. And that part is fun. Making the toy is always fun. Uh, just about. And then the gap between that toy and then having uh, something that other people are actually running and using for real, in normal programming, that is a huge gap mm -hmm. on the order of hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of effort and so or more. And so with Urbit, one of the main ways that we can measure how good the core is, is how close is the toy to production. And, you know, the PALS app is... Uh, basically a toy and yet it's in production is actually the foundation for several other apps yeah i think that is something that's so persuasive to me is that so much of when i talk to friends who code is you you do the fun part and then you deal with the bullshit and pull your hair out and it almost makes it not worth it anymore and the promise of urbit you know in many ways is just the simple simplification of deployment and getting other people able to check out your thing even if it's still, you know, a draft. And it kind of reminds me of being a kid and, you know, you'd build your best like Lego creations and you go off script and you make something awesome and you're like, damn, wouldn't everyone else like to play with this fucking Lego? And uh, now they can, right? You make the best Lego castle in the world and you put it on Urbit and everyone else can go and, and use it as they like. So I think at this point we are really interested in talking about Ukbar, uh, which is in many ways the occasion for us being there. I work for Ukbar and Timlik Miptev, known on Twitter as Bazil Shinev's CEO Big Brain. Uh, this is, uh, you know, in many ways your project, not entirely, but it's a lot of your energy. And I think it'd be a great time for you to tell us what's what's going on with it and what makes you so excited about it. 
Well, so first of all, I've been really excited to talk about Ukbar for a while. Uh, I just wanted to get our actual tools and things you could get in people's hands better before doing it. But we've been talking about composability a lot, and Ukbar is the final composability piece for Urbit because we've talked about having, you know, front ends, different apps talking to each other, and we've alluded to the importance we see for, like, you know, Ethereum and roll-up constructions. And what Ukbar is is a roll-up on Ethereum that is fully integrated into Urbit. And all the smart contracts are written in Hoon. The programs running the chain are in Hoon. Uh, everything, like, it's almost as if, you know, if you're using it as a developer or a user, it's the same as, you know, writing to a file on disk or sending a message over the network. You make a call to Ukbar to read or write to, uh, glo you know, global state on the chain. So what we did at assembly. Again, I wasn't there because even though Bichel says, as, as we said, it's like a lot of my energy, but there's other people who are just as important. So Hawkwine Tipwex presented for us there along with Hadzad Walrus, who's the lead dev. And what they showed is our sort of full environment where you can write programs that just natively connect to the chain and let you like access smart contracts easily and where that just integrates with your urban apps. And I think this goes to something that Ted's been interested in a lot, which is this sort of, I guess I would say, knock takes over the world or Urbit's operating system takes over the world because all you need as a programmer at that point to write any sort of application involving, you know, money, social interaction, peer-to-peer -peer interaction is Hoon and the Urbit operating system. So, Ted, can you tell me a little bit how you've seen uh, Urbit and Ukbar fitting together? Because I know you were sort of involved in Ukbar early in its development in terms of ideas and investing in it. Well, as software eats the world, Urbit eats software. <laughs> and that started with the server side for web applications. And that's mostly what it is now, right? Uh, people write their Urbit applications, Gaul applications in Hoon. Those run inside of people's Urbit ships. And for now, even Holium, uh, on the, even though it got out of the browser, people still have to write their front ends in JavaScript. The next step on there is to have what we call Urbit native UI. So have something where you don't have to know anything about the browser in order to write uh, a client uh, for an Urbit application, so in, in order to write a, a user interface. Uh, so now, once we have that, then we have you know, server, backend, and frontend all in Hoon. And then when you add Ukbar to that, uh, Ukbar lets, Urbit, lets you write an Urbit app that very easily uh, has not only private state, which is what Urbit was originally designed for, um, but also global public state that has Byzantine fault tolerance and can do double spend protection, right? So, the uh, so that's really you know those are three big chunks of the modern world of programming, uh, and we're starting to see Urbit eat into all of those. Our biggest challenge right now that we're facing is, and this goes for Urbit in general, is making that promise real. I think what we demonstrated at Assembly in terms of how we could make this easy for programmers and doable for them is real, but there's a lot of polishing. And I think that's how I feel about everything on Urbit right now. It's, as you said, like uh, where the core devs saw light at the end of the tunnel. I think I'm finally seeing light at the end of the tunnel for getting crypto into Urbit in that way in the near future. So... I don't. I mean, I'm fine to answer any other questions on it, but I think right now it's just this very 
vision and focus thing where we know what we want to deliver, like a way to make that easy for developers and users. And there's just this like, you know, several months of work between here and really making that the case. Mm. So we talked earlier today about Stripe, right? And how they're kind of gluing mm-hmm. together everything needed to make financial product work on Web2. What about just like talking about Ookbar in the context of Web3? Like what what had to be glued together before? Are we talking about just like, like how, and how good was, how well was it someone able to glue it all together? So what, how big of an improvement is this? I think in a lot of ways, Stripe is the bizarro Ukbar. It's run by, you know, obviously like, uh, the Collison brothers are ex- just insanely talented uh, executives. Mm-hmm. And the way they see the world is that you have to glue everything together. So they do a ton of both like, you know, networking, just tons of processes for handling all different, you know, currencies, banking regulations, everything there. And Ukbar is the exact flip side of that, which is that we really don't want to glue anything together. And so what we're trying to do is make it such that uh, everything is as simple as possible. Like we have mm-hmm. for security, it's just, you know, on top of Ethereum. So all, you know, native tokens there sort of just work and are uh, incredibly secure to bridge into our system. Uh, from the program perspective, everything is Hoon, your smart contracts, your programs, everything. And then sending messages to and from the blockchain is the same as sending messages uh, to and from the Urbit operating system from the perspective of the programmer and the user. And so we actually want to sort of not glue anything together. We don't want to do cross like cross chain stuff. We don't want to do blockchains together. So we use ETH rollups. We don't want to have extra moving parts in terms of uh, game theory. So we're uh, working on ZK proving, Urbit's base language knock. And we don't want to have, you know, different, like, you know, one language for smart contracts and another for programs, or even one development environment for contracts and one for programs, which is what you have now if you're developing on Ethereum. So we're very much like just taking this very opposite thesis to Stripe, which is theirs is gl- like enable, increase the GDP of the internet by gluing everything together really well. And they've been extremely successful successful in that. And ours is to completely eliminate like all glue and leave you in this like one solid state, no moving parts world where sort of yeah. ev- everything is possible and at your fingertips. And it's the most exciting thing I've you know ever been a part of by far. Yeah, this is good to hear, too, because that's the Urbit way, is mm-hmm. to avoid glue. And instead, to uh, you know, an analogy is to use joinery, right? A good, a good uh, carpenter can build a whole house with no glue at all, right, by getting the parts to actually fit together, right? And so that attitude towards software is how we think about Urbit. You really feel it when you write an application and you can just emit a piece of data to some other ship and it just gets there. Um, mm-hmm. That is, it's very uh, evocative of joinery. And so it's very, it's cool to see that uh, applied to the blockchain world too. Totally. And I think that for me, the biggest takeaway from assembly is I can start to see the possibility for a world without glue, like the developers all writing Hoon and never having to leave it and all sort of staying in that ecosystem and having it build and build. I can see blockchain integrated with it. I can see like, you know, people working on that in Urbit Core. I can see a possibility for this sort of very solid state united world where people are able to work on real problems that they care about. Yeah, yeah. No, me too. And I think one thing I wonder, though, is like, you know, Balaji didn't quite get it. Obviously, the devs are getting it and we're getting more talented people just sort of like, I don't like to use this overall like too much, but like there were a lot of Ivy Leaguers there just like hanging out at parties <laughs> who are like young, it's all over. dropping out. Um, and so like 
it seems like things are taking off in that regard too. But when we look at like Stripe, for example, and you mentioned they just have insanely good CEOs and you look around urban, like we have great people, like for sure, but it doesn't quite feel like we yet have like as nearly as many operators, for example, as we need as many like amazing CEOs as we need, um, especially with all this, you know, all this awesome developer talent bubbling up and already here. So how do we kind of like start attracting that talent in to kind of get people, maybe it's not probably not the Balajis, but these people like the Stripe CEOs who can really implement. I think you just answered your own question, which is um, say what you want about young Ivy Leaguers, but the one thing they're really, really good at is sniffing out what the new meta is going to be. Um, and so they all sort of flocked en masse from things like iBanking over to uh, tech and like private equity once when that like sort of blew up in the 2010s. Mm. And I think to the degree that you see more and more of them around Urbit, it's that in their sort of vulture-like way, they're like smelling <laughs> the, you know, rotting dead meat of success coming. And they, I, all right, I'll give, an, I'll give an anecdote. I talked maybe a month ago to, and maybe probably he'll listen to this, um, to a young guy who was like, uh, you know, still at Harvard or on leave there. And he explicitly said, I've always been really interested in Urbit, but I didn't see until recently how it would be like a good bet of time because I don't know whether it's going to pay off. And the fact that they're all around it now indicates that I think uh, if I were investing or making bets, I would start to like double down really hard on Urbit because they're never going to come. They're never going to come as early adopters, but they will start coming when it's like, obvious that there's going to be a lot going on here a little before it's obvious to the older generation that's more set in its investing mental models, uh, like someone like Balaji. Yeah, I think you're right. I think they do. They are this kind of early leading indicator, like having the dev talent, having these young Ivy Leaguers coming up, having even people who kind of previously rage quit Urbit and kind of come back to it. We have a couple of people like that at Assembly. I'm just feeling like, oh yeah, a lot of yeah, them. not inevitable, mm-hmm. but the pieces we need are in place and we just have to like really work hard to fit these pieces together in a non-gluey way. I agree. Uh, Ted, any what are your like sort of closing thoughts from this assembly like, assembly experience and where Urbit's at right now? I would say this is the first time I've really felt as though the Urbit ecosystem, I try not to use the word community, uh, has is so big and has so much talent, not just talent, but actualized talent in the form of skill at Hoon and other things, that uh, it feels much less as though Talon is sort of going it alone um, and that everything is dependent on us. And it's really, it's now it's dependent on a much larger group of people with a lot more resources. That's great to see because Urbit has always been, you know, intending to decentralize in many ways. And it just sort of happened. Yeah. <laughs> this is, that's the crazy thing about exponentials, right? You go like sort of cluster, 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 then suddenly, boom, there's this huge thing. Mm-hmm. And you sort of can't, like, you can't even control it at that point. Like, yeah, I predict several booms coming up. Um, mm-hmm. This was one minor one. And I think there are going to be a few big ones in the next couple of years. I love Tlon, and this is purely a hypothetical, but I think like, as an example, I think right now, if everyone at Talon decided to make it their mission to kill Urbit and make it not happen, I don't think that would be possible, which is pretty exciting. And they will not do that. Yeah. They're amazing for it. But it's like, just, just to, to illustrate the degree of decentralization. Yeah. Uh, love you. Love you guys. There are fewer and fewer single points of failure in the whole system. Yes. And that's, that's very good. 
Yeah, it kind of feels like it's approaching this like Ethereum type point or just like general like Bitcoin type point. Well, maybe not Bitcoin, but um, <laughs> Bitcoin's going the other way. <laughs> you know, problems may arise and may slow us down. Like I had a lot of conversations with people about, you know, like US regulations and overall it's like, yeah, this might be slowed down a bit. Like if Tuan suddenly everyone just like died in an offsite, it would be terrible, but it would still, we could pick up the pieces and keep building. That's amazing. Yeah, it seems like Urbit has reached escape velocity. So uh, with that, thank you, Ravnus, for being here. Thank you yeah, thanks. To, my, to my regular boys who have joined me, and we will see you next time on The Network Age. Cheerio, Peace. lads. Thanks for having me.